ever wondered if you were born to be a leader? The one that steps up when the party is dying a death and the team morale is on the floor? If that's you, perhaps you're considering the next stage in your career, the chance to step up. But you're not sure where to start. Well, cue this podcast, The Leadership Quest, a place where we share and unveil some of the thinking from the very best leaders out there, including a few who say that this is a mythical unicorn that we aspire to, and it's all nonsense. So subscribe to join us on the journey of discovering these secrets, and pop over to the website leadershipquest.net to find out more. I'm Annie Coops. Welcome to the place to explore new ideas and here's to helping to make more of us the best leaders that we can be. Hi there. In this podcast, I was really lucky to be interviewing Myron Rogers, who is an expert in organisations as living systems. It was a great conversation about leadership in this context and made me reflect on the changes that we might need to make to move away from single organisational leadership to one where leaders are able to operate across whole systems. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. Hello, Myron. Hi. How are you, Anne? I'm good, thank you. Great. It's really nice to be here with you um, on a quite a rainy afternoon in November, I think, isn't it? Yes, it's surprisingly wet for Yorkshire. It is. And I that's agree. a sarcastic remark. So the, here we are then in Yorkshire <laughs> with my very um, absolutely sarcastic because we obviously get our own fair share of rain. Yeah, right. um, so how interesting it is that I'm sat here with my very Yorkshire accent, right. but clearly in Yorkshire, and mm. clearly you're not from Yorkshire, are you? Really? You can't pick that up from my <laughs> accent? Oh. So first of all, can I ask you, would you like us to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I guess I'll pick up first on, on the Yorkshire accent or lack of it. I am... American. Some people think I'm Canadian, but I'm American. I grew up in Boston, and Boston, New York, Chicago, um, in the United States. I began working in the UK about 30 years ago under John Major when he was Prime Minister. Uh, my consulting practice has been across all sectors, all industries, and very global. I have a, a shameful record in terms of being carbon neutral and flying uh, all over the world. But I've, I've been challenged uh, in a lot of instances in, in working with very, very complex industries and in, in going through significant change. So that's been uh, great. It, more and more, I was working in the UK in um, the National Health Service. And uh, currently, well, five years ago, I married a Yorkshire lass. So people Excellent. ask, why do I live in Yorkshire? And I say, because of love. Um, and that's so a I, really good answer, living yes. a Yorkshire woman is the way to go. Yes, right. And so I, I, I moved over five years ago. And since then, my work's mostly been, I'm, I'm a systems guy. We'll talk about that more, I'm sure. Um, I know a lot about systems and, and have a reputation about it and how to work with complex systems. And so, you know, currently my work is on uh, what I describe as the integration agenda in the, in the National Health Service in England. And so I'm working from Scotland and Northern Ireland to the south of England in these very challenged situations. 
that's really interesting. So what you're bringing to my conversations around um, the podcast really is an international dimension, which I don't mm. think anybody else has really started talking about mm. yet. So that will be really interesting. Um, as you know, I'm just having conversations with people about leadership, what it means, whether it's a real thing. And I guess my first question to you is, can you tell me a little bit about what you think leadership is about in the systems context? Right. You know, you're not going to like this. I mean, my first response is, I don't know, right? We're, we're inventing this. But I, I mean, there are some things that I would say about it. The, the first one is that systems leaders are, they have profoundly challenged what leadership is and, and what it means to lead in an organization context. So that, you know, in the, in the systems environment, you begin questioning everything. I mean, questioning the hierarchy, questioning the fragmentation, questioning roles, you know, uh, targets, uh, meth- uh, methods of measurement, what we pay attention to. What we, the, w- once you exited the emergency care, you know, the urgent nature, of, you know, the hospital setting, th- then you encounter a primary care system that's completely fragmented, fragmented yeah. not connected up with one another, even though people's best intention is to connect it up. So we have this, right now there's this profound, I think, conflict I mean, I talk about in the NHS, in my experience, it's true across industries and sectors and countries. We have this conflict between the absolute recognition that integrated holistic systems are how to go, but everything that people have learned, everything they've learned how to run, everything that they're rewarded for or valued for is actually not that system at all. It's Mm -hmm. the part-based system. So I... People talk a systems language now. They talk about the ideas of systems and as though they, you know, really know them. The actions that we're taking, though, are are not close to that yet. How do we change our mindset? So we do in the health system, in particular, I think we do a lot of work around developing leaders. Hmm. But I guess, based on what you've just been talking about, we may well be developing old-style leaders who are being developed to exist in a system that's about performance targets, um, you know, their organisation. Mm-hmm. What do you think then we might need to think about in terms of shifting our mindset about the types of leaders that we might need to develop for the future that are more fit for systems leadership? Yeah, this is a tricky question. So one of the places that I uh, come from is that if... If what we understand about about complex living systems, the dynamics of them, if those are true at all, then they reside in our direct experience somewhere, even though we haven't been able to articulate it. So when I talk to groups about about this, you, you often have the response is often, he's just talking about something that I've always done, or I've always believed, right, okay. or I've always. You know, it's that recognition. It's, it's a kind of new kind of language and a different understanding of what many people know works. And, and the dirty little secret of organizational life and organizational leadership is that we do this other stuff because we have to. But if we're trying to make something work for us, we act in an entirely different way. And the systems theory and the systems dynamic, the whole way of thinking about that, allows you to understand you know the fundamental dynamics of all human endeavor that's the deal we're just shifting not just it's a big shift from understanding living organizations as machines 
versus understanding them as alive. And if they're alive in you know the social context of us, there are certain things that, uh, certain dynamics that always play out. Some people, one of the things I'm sort of known for accidentally, I must say, is this little list of maxims. And those, it, it's interesting where they came from, because for me, you know, I go back, I was well-schooled in, in systems theory early in my career. Uh, Fritjof Capra, Meg Wheatley, these, they were my, you know, co-workers, partners, people we, we went very deeply um, into work with, things that people recognize, um, the World Cafe, it's Juanita Brown, uh-huh. David Isaacs, that's, you know, part, they were part of my um, circle, um, Etienne Wegner and Communities of Practice, I mean, we had a inquiry group, it's an important thing, important practice, for about five years we had an inquiry group, we met a couple times a year in Juanita's um, living room in uh, Marin County, California, for a few days. And, I mean, it was a deep and committed and disciplined exploration of what are the implications of living systems theory for social organizations. So one of the things that then, you know, the other part of my thing is that I'm a a deep-in practitioner. I'm a consultant. I do large-scale change. I work over a long period of time with clients. There's nothing more exciting, powering, uh, uh, inspiring than being on the ground in, you know, in organizations, in the real work with the real people in the organizations. All that said, one of the things that I've always looked for is, you know, do I have to, is, is it required that somebody gets a PhD in systems theory in order to work systems? It shouldn't be. It should be that we actually intuitively understand this and have direct experience of it. So the maxims are actually what over the years have just grown out of expressions of you know the deep systems theory in a way that you can instantly recognize them. Yeah. So this is not one of the maxims, but people know the phrase uh, culture eats strategy. Yeah. And when you give that to people, even if they haven't heard it before, they recognize it as yeah. true. Yeah. And the maxims are a little like that. So um, I'm going to ask you about the maxims yeah. in a second, but just to go back to make sure I've understood. So... I think when I asked you the question about how do we develop leaders Mm. for systems, what I think you said was that I think in your experience, it is innate. It's just that we are developing people. We're focusing on the wrong component of leadership. We're we're giving them the technical aspects of leadership through how to survive on a board, how to do all of that. But what you're saying is a lot of them will have the gifts and skills to lead Mm. in a system, but perhaps we're just not supporting them to develop and grow those skills would that be fair i think that is part of it uh, um the idea that um we could support people differently if you look now in the in the nhs and in, in the uk um the integration agenda i mean one of the things that's happening is nhs england is really recognizing that there has to be a new way of doing it and they hold a vision for this the vision is quite compelling and then when they go into practice they move back into the old style operating and so you have people who are stuck with the demand for the change and you know frozen in they're going to get a monday morning call from somebody in london you know because they didn't hit their their yeah which you know is going on as we speak um right now So, so there's that, but then there's another piece of this, right, which I don't want. It is that some of this is intuitive and some of it 
actually requires work at our intuition. It requires a kind of courage and discipline. I'll give you an example. I'm on the board, um, I'm chair of the board, actually, of a foundation called Lang Kelly Chase Foundation, which has a significant endowment and is committed to changing the systems that perpetuate severe and multiple disadvantage, Mm -hmm. changing those systems. So one of the things that's happened to us over two years, being on the board in this, is the recognition that the way the board operates and what it pays attention to in everything it does, from how the board relates to staff, to how the board manages the uh, investment uh, that we do, that how the board... is the board inclusive you know in 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 the uk 99 percent of charity boards are white yeah 99 percent right there's uh, this cannot be right and and the charity commission actually helps enforce that through certain rules and procedures that that mean that people like me who have a particular white man's view of skills and and whatnot i can sit on a board like that easily being together and challenging our own ideas about what it is is essential, right? And coming up with an understanding that, geez, you know, if we're really paying attention to what's evolving in the environment out there, we would be looking at different things than certain kinds of targets. You know, the number of people who go through programs that Lang Kelly Chase or any foundation or charity does is not a measure of effectiveness. Yeah. The number is not. Right, there, there are deeper in social changes that you would be seeing. So that's an example of bravery, I guess, or courage, where I, I think so. you're having to look at yourselves again and work out whether your constituency and the people that work with you, etc., are the ones who can achieve the best outcome for the system, as opposed to the assumption that because you're all knowledgeable and so on, are the right people to do that work. Is yes, that right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really interesting because, of course. You know, we, um, I think in the, the NHS, we are more interested, I think, in diversity than we used to be. But if you look at the patterns that still exist, that we still tend to recreate the pattern of the past. And it's quite courageous people who step out and do different things, I would say. So. Well, and uh, honestly, I, I don't mean this offensively, but I do believe that many of the attempts to generate diversity are... Um, organizations are ways in which the current power structure wants diversity to work with them yes so to say that a bit differently i mean we one of the things we've said in the lang kelly work because um, we are trying to redo our board is that if you have new people in the same process you get the same result right and That's one of the things that, einstein saying about doing the same thing I yeah remember, yeah but it's about you get the same outcome you keep doing the same thing right but I, I do think that one of the assumptions that the diversity movement holds is that if we just get new people in here yeah. we'll be fine but yeah. in fact partly what happens is we convert them to, to the, the current way of yeah. doing things rather than yeah. how does this actually profoundly challenge the underpinnings that's of really what interesting we're doing. so Roz Davies who I spoke to on one of the other podcasts uh, we talked a little bit about the patient leadership movement mm-hmm. and the belief that we both hold a strong belief that you need people who use the system to be in the tent, to be part of it. Um, but our observations, I think it's fair to say, are that 
what the system does is it tries to recreate people who are patient leaders who look like the system. Exactly. And they don't tolerate people with difference. They, they only create right. the same type of seat around the table. Yes. So um, in a recent advert, for example, it asked for people who had board experience and, right. uh, you know, and, and it, it's, right. a, it's, it's mirroring of themselves, exactly. I think. So. No, that's a, I mean, I think that's exactly the example that, of, of what I was talking about. Um, I find that all the time is it's amazing how little experience, knowledge, uh, wisdom we have about how to engage one another as equals as people. Yeah, what the colonel says. Right, water, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Once you let it out, it's out. It'll right. find its own way yes. to flow through every place that it can go. Yeah, and yeah. information is the same. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that it has no hierarchy is that the the pre-existing power dynamic hierarchy the information that a leader holds and the information that a subordinate or someone a citizen holds are not disequal right they are yeah they're without hierarchy they're at least neutral um, in facing one another the real issue is meaning actually has a hierarchy yes, how we yes, make sense out yes, of things yes, what matters yes. and so, so we're talking about quite a lot of interesting things here. I think there's quite a lot of conversation about leading in complex systems and um, and what skills you might need. But let's go back to Myron's maxims to <laughs> see if we can uh, maxims. Sorry, to see if we can help people to understand your perspective about systems. Do you want to tell me how did they arise? First of all, did somebody... the, it really came out of direct work with clients over the did years, it? and they, you know, the latest one which is uh, the process you use to get to the future is the process, uh, is the future you get. Let me say that again. The process you use to get to the future is the future you get. Um, that is, uh, that's probably only six months old. Maybe it's a year old by now. But, you know, the, the, it was careful paying attention over a long period of time. It's what resonates with people, you know, as long as you're not compromising the idea I mean it does resonate with people so for instance one one of them is people own what they help create people own what they help create this is just like common sense right in some ways that's not even my maxim I mean that was posited by Margaret Mead and Kurt Lewin Margaret Mead the cultural anthropologist Kurt Lewin the father of OD um, and social psychology but but underneath that one, you know, since then, the theoretical underpinnings of that thing, not not it just means this isn't just obviously feeling true. It's you cannot violate it without consequence, because it is a constant happening in all living systems. Is that a living system is constantly creating itself? It's creating its environment. Uh, I, I think some of the stuff that's under that is really, really challenging because it has to do with how it is we perceive the world, how we make sense out of it. So anyway, that, for example, if you use just that one as a design criteria for anything you were doing, you know, any initiative, any project, whatever, and you began with people own what they help create, it's going to steer you in a direction about what kind of process you can have. And when things don't go well, you can also use that to say, well, let's look at this maxim. Let's see how, you know, this this design principle, let's see how we used it and what ways we violated it that generated these consequences that were, yeah. I think that's really, so that's um, 
for me, um, as somebody who has aspired forever to try to make things better as a leader in one guise or another. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a self-appointed leader, but, you know, um, I think that's a really useful thing. It's a really useful thing to think about, as you say. Um, and I remember, um, I, you know already, we've had this conversation before, that I'm a fan of the blog Heart to Art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember write, reading something, I think... Heart John, of the Art, that is. Pardon, it's heart of the heart, Art. Heart of the Art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not Heart to That's the John art. Atkinson. It is. And, so I read, I read a piece that... Um, John had written, and it, the bit resonated with me was about how systems have, and, and of course, you know, being a nurse, I've got an inclination towards biology and all of that sort right. of thing, yeah. and how systems actually have a status quo, and that if you try to agitate or change the system, that it has an innate... This come alive in the decisions you make, the way in which you walk, you know, the walking the talk, the reality of your life, um, uh, and not just your life in work, I mean, it, it's it's change is is this embodied practice those who do the work do the change is you know consistently people are done too and the wisdom the experience you know the idea of the change that you're trying to bring about meets a particular kind of reality and the people who know that reality are the ones working in the as we call it the shop floor but yeah so it's really obvious when you say it, isn't it? Hmm. It's not. That's the point of them, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> right. It is really obvious. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, if you want to make the any system healthier, you connect it to more of itself. And okay. so, this is an issue about networks and how you connect the system. In the mechanistic worldview of the organization, what we have is fragmented. So, you know, people talk all the time about silos. I could say good things about silos, but they also bring with them a variety of negative consequences. And one of them is that the system becomes disconnected from itself. So biologically, as a a nurse, you, you know that biologically someone becomes disconnected from themselves. Ill health ensues, right? And you want to make people healthier, you have to, you know, part of it is a consciousness shift in that. There's an issue always about um, uh, where you start a change practice. So the next one, which was actually the first one ever, is start anywhere, follow it everywhere. It was, it's that in, in systems working, anything you touch brings the whole system with you, with you, you know, with it. Um, so if you, you know, you're, you have a ball of yarn and you pull one end of a piece of yarn, the whole thing unravels with you. I mean, that's true about systems as well. You know, people, we constantly go through this sequence of, all right, we have to have a vision and mission first, and then we'll do a strategy, and then we'll do the tactical thing, and then we'll do the, you know, we got to hire project managers and God knows what. And there's a whole linear sequence that models actually the mechanistic view of organizations. And so we're trying, you know, we're certainly trying to break that, but also to recognize that systems don't operate in a linear fashion. They are nonlinear. So if you pick anything that is, when I say start anywhere, I trust that people are going to pick something that's worthwhile, right? They're not going to, you know, and almost anything could become worthwhile if you follow it anywhere. Because as soon as you take action to do anything, the system is going to bounce back at you and it's going to tell you you're on the right path or the wrong path. And the wrong path is going to, you know, people are going to have enormous resistance. You may still be on the right path, but the process you're using isn't the right one because you haven't brought people into this. Go back to the first maxim. 
people and what they help create. So anyway, start anywhere, follow it everywhere. People seem to like that because it well, I, I brings their attention in a different way. Absolutely, and it gives them permission not to worry about right. starting in the right place. So there's something about if you are a leader worrying about is there a right approach to this? Is this one right way? Mm -hmm. How do I identify what that when you're saying actually that's less important than starting and seeing where it takes you because it'll take you everywhere right. if you do it properly. I think it's a reassuring maxim around you probably won't get this wrong if you just yeah. start. You've got to start somewhere. Well and I, it also uh, points to taking the responsibility to notice what's really happening. So in the, again, in the sort of linear project management world that we live in, uh, we develop a plan and we put the plan in place and immediately something goes wrong with it because that's the way, that's how it happens, that's life. And we try and shut down that thing that's gone wrong rather than engage with it, right? And so what this suggests is that whatever comes up is information that matters and how do you engage with this? How do you pay attention to it? Um, how do you work with it? And then the last one is the process you use to get to the future is the future you get. So you can't you can't get to a collaborative organization through dictatorial hierarchy. You can't command people to be collaborative, right? You have to start modeling. You have to follow the maxims from beginning to end. Use those as design criteria, for instance. If you're really using those as design criteria, it begins to change the way people um, work together, the way they view one another. Um, um, it challenges the nature of relationships, our fundamental identity, what it is we're trying to do together. So, so I think um, they're really useful and actually quite practical as well. So mm -hmm. You're right, I can understand why the people that you work with like them, because they're easy to get your head around, really. Right. So. Um, I was really lucky, as you know, I met you and I've capitalised on my luck, really, um, because you came and, and did a session with me um, for my women's leaders. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that struck me that I wondered if you might talk a little bit about, about the stuff that you talked about, was the cognition piece. Sure. Um, and it, it, it had never really... <laughs> it's stupid, really, because yeah. I thought, well, Anne, you're reasonably bright. Why had you never thought about this before? So could you talk a little bit about cognition and leadership? Sure. Is that sure. okay? Yes. It's funny, somebody just said... Um, um, I'm, I have a medical issue at the moment, as you know. I have to go to a big appointment next Friday, and someone suggested to me, you should talk to your physicians, and the first thing you should talk to them about is cognition. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they enter that conversation a little differently. Um, so um, in systems theory, in living systems theory, one way of thinking about it, the story that you tell is that there are um, kind of the big five. There are these dynamic uh, processes that are constantly going on. They aren't separate, they're integrated with one another and they play with one another. But they include you know, networks, they include self-organization, they include emergence, chaos and complexity, and cognition. And cognition is the one that will drive everyone crazy because it fundamentally changes our relationship to the world and to each other. So the, the, there are many, many uh, proponents of this who've been working on it in neurobiology and evolutionary biology and cognitive science for a very long time. But the founders of the 
current worldview. It's, it's called the Santiago theory. It's uh, Humberto Maturana and Francisco Varela, two Chilean um, biologists who, uh, who did their research and wrote. Varela worked in France, sp spoke Spanish, worked in France, wrote in English. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Maturana is the same. I actually just name dropping I was working uh, for a number of years I did some work in um, Venezuela in a fabulous cooperative um, there and uh, Maturana came and talked with basically urban peasants about deep cognition theory it was just brilliant um, stuff so um, cognition is really about how do we know anything that we know and and you know this has a big impact on uh, what it is we do in the world out there. So, if I am looking outside at as I am right now, I'm looking outside in my back garden, and there's a tree there, I see a tree that I believe is an external reality. There's you know, yep. you know, a hundred percent of the information that makes up that tree is available to me. Yep. Um, I see it and kind of construct that tree. What isn't actually true. It isn't actually how we see what happens is that any anything we see is made up of inf infinite information so a tree for instance has pollen i mean it does, or certainly conifer would have pollen on it and therefore uh, it's giving off we know many things but one piece is ultraviolet light which a honeybee can see but mm. i can't right mm. but that information is there and it's there all the time and that that you know this kind of swirling infinity of information that I choose only a very small amount and that what it is I choose is it's related to the cultural experience of treeness that we have how our culture sees us by the way western culture would see trees in a different way than asian culture would we know this through all sorts of studies that have been done for a very long period of time color spectrums are actually different in different cultures um yeah. Color. Yes, color, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a whole thing about when did Western society begin to see blue? And it's only several thousand years ago. We know this from um, literature studies that find there's no presence of blue until about, you know, 4,000 years ago or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So what happens basically is that the information that makes up my experience of anything, 80% of it comes from me. 20% comes from the external environment. So in other words, the external environment just disturbs me, provokes me into creating a picture of a reality that I live in, right? And so in that sense, reality is judged, my reality is judged as good or bad by how well it preserves me as a yeah. living being. Yeah. So I see a tree and I know that I shouldn't run headfirst into it, right? Because yeah. that would not be a, yeah. a good thing to do. But, you know, the cognition piece goes much deeper than that. So it suggests that each one of us has a different reality. They can be close. They might be close, but they are actually different. And so I want to go back to that army story because there's something compelling in it. I was working with them on how do you learn during battle. And the basic assumption under that was this notion that Everybody has a view of reality and everybody's wrong because everybody's incomplete. And if you don't build a shared picture of reality with a group, then what you get are fragmented learning and therefore fragmented action. So people are all off doing their own thing, inter, you know, interpreting their own reality. 
So you need to spend time actually finding something that the scientists call it, you know, a shared sense of, of what's significant in the world. That's but what they're looking for. It really struck me because I had gone through quite naive quite often. So I'd gone through my time working with people, believing that if we'd had a shared, what I perceived as a shared experience, that we both had the same perception about what had happened. Mm -hmm. But what you were teaching me was whilst you might have gone through the same process, your perception about what happened might not be the same because it will be coloured by that 80% of me that's different to the 80% of them. And I think that's a really interesting perspective for a leader. And what I guess it made me think about was that I needed to work harder to understand other people's perceptions mm-hmm. um, in order to reach a set shared. So putting more stories in together to understand what the collective experience was. That's quite tough, I think. That's quite a tough thing to do. Well, it's tough only because it's a practice that we d- we've devalued somehow. Because we're... We don't think it's tough to deal with the consequences of people having all these fragmented views and the action they take, which screws things up royally. And then we spend years trying to undo that, training programs and this and that and the other thing. So, I mean, it is actually a shift of perspective of if you have an understanding of and therefore faith in, and faith is an interesting (laughs) word in this, but faith in how living systems work. Belief, maybe. Yeah, and it would begin to say that you know, we have to pay attention to different things in a different way, Yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, people talk about compassion all the time. I mean, the source of compassion is this, isn't it? That actually your experience is different from mine and it's the same, right? Yes. And, you know... Uh, uh, but I guess to... you're right. So we spend a lot of time talking about things that we can do that don't do that and then live with the consequences of that, but we don't necessarily build capacity or the capability to do some of the things that we would need to do to pay attention to that I think so for example you know storytelling conceptually Mm -hmm. is seen as a soft and fluffy skill and technique to use whereas you know learning how to project yourself as a leader which is doing the opposite I guess really um, is seen as a something that we should focus on I think it's a really interesting thought and I think if we are going to move to systems thinking, these are the types of things that we're going to have to start unraveling a little bit. No, it's true, true. I mean, just what you were saying, um, you know, in this idea about cognition, how do we know what what... How do we know what's unfolding? Is this moving us in the direction that we want to go? You know, that linear notion of building, you know, vision, mission, strategy planning all the different teams and doing it in that linear fashion, what you get is somewhere downstream, you get um, the unintended consequences of the change. That's the only thing you get predictably. Yeah. Everything else, some stuff might happen, might not. And when, when you finally got it down to that end, I mean, what you realize is that nobody actually sees this vision the same way. Nobody yeah. understands this strategy yeah. the same way. Or the strategy that we've built doesn't have the intelligence needed that's you know, present in the system, in the organization, if we had just asked, if we had just invited under the right circumstances. There's all sorts of stuff we have to make up for. We have to rebuild trust. We have to rebuild you know, people's sense of safety and willingness. And 
And that goes back to your maxims as well, because if you don't involve people in that, mm-hmm. then it's never going to work anywhere. Right. What What's striking me is something you said right at the very beginning about where we are currently in the health system, where we can see the vision emerging around systems and wholeness and completeness, and yet we're still being driven by an approach which is about the opposite, right. Right. and how difficult it must be for leaders in the system currently who perhaps understand what to do, mm-hmm. but then they're driven by the need to put in a business plan, the need to respond to NHS England and NHSI, when actually what they need is a little bit more freedom to explore a different way of being. And you know, some, at some point, we're going to have to put some trust aren't we, in, mm. in the system and in people to do things differently. Yes. Yes to all of that. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and, you know, say it. Um, in, there is something in it. Uh, there, there's fear plays a role in this because an organization like the NHS is more than a health organization, right? A health and care organization. It's actually a political organization. It's the biggest part of the UK budget, so it will always come into play around that, and it'll always be a political football, we would say, in in the US, and it's not the kind of football over here. And so, you know, because of that, when you're doing anything that's... The integration agenda, as much sense as it makes to people, as much as, you know, the absolute apparent nature of this is the way things need to operate. We've always known that. We've, you know, people have known this forever. Doesn't take consultants or big experts to figure this out. We know we've known that forever, but we've developed incredible expertise in operating a different way, mm-hmm. right? And for a long period of time, that delivered goods, right? It delivered good stuff. We're at a point now where that system no longer can deal with the complexity that we find ourselves in, and we need to do something profoundly different. And you know, this, the systems approach is really what we have to work with. What we don't have are good skills in how to do work as a system. So we fall back consistently in the things that haven't worked in the past. And we do over and over again those things. We do them in the same way. We commission things in the same yeah. way. We, we, we plan for things in the same way. If there's a problem, people aren't meeting targets, give them new targets. Yeah. If there's, yeah. you know, I mean, all that's, those are the drivers. And, and a big piece of that, I think, is fear. It is, if we... We're going to get caught with uh, with our uh, you know our pants down. We're going to yeah. get caught in yeah. some way that holds us out to ridicule and and you know let's be real. Some people have experienced really horrible consequences. Who've you know people who've been trying to do things that are really original and and unique and contributing. I did some work a, a while ago where one of the things that I learned when I reflected on integration and systems, and it was before I had as much input from people like you was that we needed leaders in the current system to learn how to what I said was leave their swords at the door so we need to get people who are brave enough I think to leave their old power at the door and walk through a door and be different and I think that is a bravery thing and I think what stops people being brave is fear actually Mm -hmm. fear of the consequences of doing that so that's quite interesting. One, I'm hoping that um, not only people from the health system listen to the podcast, I think. So have you seen um, these types of things be done well in other places that are outside yes. of the health system? No, definitely. I mean, i actually seen better outside really? of the health system. I mean, I did, I did mention, um, I haven't talked about this in a long time, but 
Venezuela, which, as I think as most people would know, is quite a mess and has been on that path for a long time. And I've had some scary experiences there. But there's a 20,000-person, 48-year-old uh, uh, cooperative in uh, central Venezuela um, that is... I would describe it as basically urban peasants, but it's also the countryside too, that began, as I said, it began, I think, 48 years ago as a transportation service, essentially, in one city, Barquisimeto in Venezuela, is now a multidisciplinary thing. It runs completely without hierarchy. It's a it's a you know, very big business, completely without hierarchy. It runs through dialogue. It has over 3,000 meetings a year. No complaints about the meetings. People come together. There are different parts of the cooperative. People come together in those parts to discuss in a collaborative, dialogic way, making sense. Remember this cognition thing. Yeah. How do we make sense together over a long period of time about what's going on, what's really working, what isn't? So they have these, these dialogues anyone is invited to them you know our our part of the cooperative could be uh, you know some particular agricultural part of it but anybody who wants to come to this could come it's in the community and they they just talk and wow this is this brilliant thing that survived you know we talk about the kinds of upsetting moments the hurricanes the earthquakes that we have you know they're they're what they're going through in, in their environment is, is much more. So that's, I mean, it's compelling. I actually brought um, eight future chief executives from the NHS to this cooperative for two yeah. weeks yeah. a number of years ago. It was part of the Yorkshire and Humber um, Aspiring Chiefs program. Okay. And with the exception of one, none of them wanted to be a chief at the end of that. <laughs> really? Yes. That's really interesting. Uh, well, What's it, why did they say that? Can you remember? I, I, well, you know, the I think partly the the reality of the the social movement that this cooperative was mm-hmm. brought them back to their roots and what ah, inspired yeah. them, and they didn't need that expression of power in that traditional way. They Gosh. they found it in another way in their life. Yeah, I don't think my client was happy, but... <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's, um, yeah. that's yeah. the sort of transformation that we might need at the end of the day. Uh, but I, when I come back, you asked you know, about other places. So, I mean, I have worked in the military, and then, you know, and the, this learning during battle thing is, is their ability to negotiate a space in which the hierarchy disappeared because the learning that you had to have was more important. Mm-hmm. Than maintaining the hierarchy, right? So, I mean, that that was a profound lesson in that. No place is perfect, and certainly they aren't. But I, you know, for a number of years, one of my major clients, when I was first really working from a systems perspective, was one of the Dupont uh, major chemical manufacturing yeah. plants, um, with a leadership team that was just brilliant in experimentation and openness. Um, and became the safest chemical manufacturing plant or manufacturing plant of any kind in the world for about five years running and did its environmental leadership at that time was was astronomical about where they were. I mean, people can hardly believe the stories that came out of that. I worked with interesting leaders in, in ed, the education environment in the United States, doing communities of practice all across California and among teachers on 
uh, English as a second language, you know, where it was really needed to be taught and, and profound stuff there. And then a lot of work in the high-tech world in which overall many of the organizations I worked with no longer exist. I mean, yeah. they disappeared. Yeah. But for a period of time, uh, in a moment, being able to do something that was quite profound. Uh, I worked with one high-tech leader in three different major high-tech organizations. I mean, three of the majors out there. Yeah. He, you know, just, he was a very, very gifted leader. And he brought in different kinds of practices, which even after he was gone or those organizations no longer existed, you know, expanded, went, went other places. I think that if you measure change based on one organization, your heart's going to be broken. And if you measure change in terms of how you can see society changing tomorrow, your heart's going to be broken. You just do the right work. You move it forward. You keep learning with your clients, with with those you're working with, with your colleagues. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a bit that's like leadership it. quest. That's a bit like my question around. So it's a bit like just carrying on, exploring and experimenting and and looking and thinking. So we don't value... That's the other thing that struck me about the day that you spent with us, um, or one of the other things, there was many, on the day that you spent with us really, was about how little time, how transactional we've become and how yes. a lot of what you're talking about requires deep thought and that we don't pay any attention to time, to think, to reflect, right. and how important that's likely to be. Yes, yes. Because if we're talking about cognition, you need time to think about that. Yeah, time and I would say conversation. I mean, the the other piece that, you know, I don't talk about very much, but one of the pieces in the cognition story is as that evolved, um, it gets into language and languaging and, you know, how we make sense of the world and, and speak it. Maturano is a interesting. His perspective about the evolution of language is that it stems from our desire to be intimate. Wow. Right. Right. That that is this, you know. And he's, he's, at one point he was talking about just the human hand. If you touch it, it you know conveys enormous um, information, energy, and whatnot. Yeah. And that is another you know it was another Connection portal to, use, to being yeah. intimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're coming towards the end of our time, I think. But I'd like to ask you a couple more questions okay. from it. First of all, this might be a hard question for you, I think. Can you point us at leaders that you think are notable and why? Now, leaders mm. are notable. Or are people in the past that you think have been extraordinary for a reason that you think is about systems? Well, first, I mean, I, I, I would just say that any one person you point to will have flaws because they're yeah. a human being, and that, I respect that. And it's a. Karen Linus said the same thing. Yeah. yeah I mean, there is no. Thing. We're just people, right? Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I often say, you know, we we live in this world in which we're looking all the time for heroic leaders, yes. right? We're looking for somebody to save us, somebody to do something extraordinary, and that they don't exist. In my view, at any one time, there's two or three of those people on earth, if we're lucky, mm -hmm. and everybody else who's a leader is us. It's just us, right? Mm -hmm. We're doing our best. And I mean, I think, I, I mean, I could name some people who, for a moment in time when I was working with them, I just thought they were doing extraordinary stuff. But there aren't people who there aren't people who are out there really well known. I 
I did. I'm kind of the Forrest Gump of OD. Um, I don't know if you know who Forrest Gump is, but the, the movie, Gump. right? So I've been around everybody in the field and and wor- worked with them in different settings. And it sounds obnoxious, you know, when I talk about it. But you know, I've worked with the Dalai Lama. I've worked with the chief of staff of the U.S. Army. I've worked, you know, this there's this list that goes on. But you're still in Yorkshire, just to bring you back. To yeah, I'm still in Yorkshire, speak. exactly. <laughs> well, and also, as I say, Forrest Gump. It's just Absolutely. I don't know how I got there. Yeah, I, yeah. I was just, you know, I don't know how I got there. I was just standing on the street corner, and <laughs> but somebody, I, I would say, you know, again considering all the flaws. So Mandela, uh, at a period of time, here's the interesting thing about Mandela for me is that he was, he is one of those all-time human beings on the face of the earth who had presence and being and ideals. And I mean, everything is extraordinary about him. And I, you know, I did work in South Africa after apartheid for some years. And the mess that South Africa is right now, he helped set in motion because he cut a political deal about who was going to succeed mm-hmm. him. And it was the wrong choice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He couldn't know that at the time. I mean, but we, you know, it's, it's this contrast yeah, between, yeah. yeah, we're really good at this. You know, people would say that about Gandhi. And, uh, you know, and the Dalai Lama, um, I'm, you know, they, I don't know if you know this, but I'm Buddhist, right? I'm a, a Zen Buddhist. I have been okay. for most of my adult life. And uh, the Dalai Lama, a Tibetan Buddhist, obviously, slightly different, but same teachings and whatnot. He is a profoundly learned scholar and just a he- when you, The first time I met him, just many years ago in San Francisco, the first time I met him, I burst into tears. And at that time, I, just, I, I didn't think he was anything. I just mm-hmm. was in his presence. And it was sort of the, the, the extent that his humanity is present. It was just, a, you know, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. And, you know, one critique of him would be he's moved incredibly slowly on modernizing Buddhism. He says on one hand that, you know, if science, if if the science disagrees with Buddhist theory, then Buddhist theory should change. But, you know, the, the, yeah. um, which I think he means. Yeah. But there are a number of philosophical challenges in Tibetan Buddhism that, you know, around women and homosexuality and yeah. whatnot, that should yeah. really, he he should not be so cautious about. He should yeah. show a little more leadership. But still, who am I to say? You know, this these are these are extraordinary uh, people out there. Same time, one of my dearest friends, who was at one of my best men at my wedding, a guy named Rich Marcello. He he was this high tech leader. It was he used to talk about violence in the organization. And he would say things like, coming late to a meeting is psychic violence. Really? Because everybody in that meeting is prepared. Impact. They're ready yeah. to do, yeah. and you are sending a message to them. And, yeah. and he wanted to create a violent, you know, psychic violence-free organization wow. always. Right? And there's a big high-tech leader. Was, so so some of the, lots of things that you said actually resonate with some of the things that Karen said in particular. So mm. um, that's really interesting. So I think... I've learned a huge amount from you over the last few weeks alone. <laughs> if you were to point people at, I think people might be intrigued by some of the things that you say. Mm-hmm. If you were to point people at other resources to think about starting to read about systems stuff, mm-hmm. where would you point them? So in a self-serving way, I point them to my book, with make yeah. it the, a simpler way, yeah. which is not practical. It is thoughtful. Yeah, um, yeah. 
and it's a it's a small book, but I mean, it's a short book, but um, it gets into some of the theory about uh, and the implications. But it's not very practical in terms of what it is you but want to do. It's a thinking book. A lot of people thinking who are book. listening, I think, yeah. um, to the podcast are thinkers, and that's why they're right. interested in what people have to say. So right. that might be. So it's called um, a simpler way, and it's by yourself. Yes. Yeah, and then go on. Are you going to say um, something else? Well, I was going to say Fritjof Capra. If you want to know fundamental, if you want to know the 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 most uh, realized integrated picture of living systems theory it's Fritjof Capra and there's one the book I love is the web of life it will tell you nothing about social organizations yeah but it will give you in there's a 60 page near the beginning there's about 60 pages that is the history of systems theory which is just brilliant and then it goes into living systems theory and it lays out and so if you it's and it's a he's a great writer it's a good read even though yeah. it's a science book and yeah. but it won't say anything about about uh, social systems much and if you get connected into Fritjof he offers a number of things the you know the other thing i would say is that less so now but back in the late 90s early part of the 20th century there were a lot of books popularizing systems theory coming out some of them quite deep, quite good. I mean, I just go back there because it's exciting. I mean, yeah. you get into that stuff and it's quite exciting. So one more book I mentioned, which is, I mentioned this a lot. Uh, it's a book by Art Kleiner. Um, uh, it's called The Age of Heretics. And it looks at, there's a way of understanding this as a systems book, but it, what it's actually looking at is the development of personal and social organizational development the leaders of it and it reads like a novel and it's really a compelling book that's the one that i think you recommended to us that i would like to read i think well and one of the things that it does for me is that it reminds me of how absolutely rebellious these people were and courageous and you know willing to do very different things and that's a theme i think that's run through everything that you've been talking about really Mm. about courage and the need to do things differently and Mm. to perceive the world differently and to tell different stories so that's that's a good place to be and then i ask people at the podcast who you would suggest that i spoke to about leadership moving forward and it's not always possible for me to access people sure. but who would you suggest that I spoke well, to? Well the first person and we, we mentioned this offline didn't we and um, it's Christopher Pietroni who's okay. the he's the new um, lead of the uh, I don't know the Leadership Center Leadership Academy Leadership okay. Institute I think it is at the University of Birmingham and uh, he's just taken that position Christopher is is uh, brilliant about many things he's been a real voice in you were talking about storytelling um, yeah. you know in public narrative in that work and also in adaptive leadership um, okay. he's the those two things, public narrative and adaptive leadership, are his things. But he's also really exploring where to go with this new institute, so he'd be an interesting person for you to That's talk with. That's lovely, so I'll see if I can make that happen. Yeah. Um, and then finally, um, just to thank you enormously for taking the time to speak to me. I, I honestly, honestly really love listening to you. Also, just to tell our listeners, how can they contact you? How can they find out more about you? Um the easiest way is to just email me and uh, you know reference the podcast I, I guess 
so we know the, the connection. And the email is myron.rogers at gmail.com. Not you have hard. a business website as well, don't you? Do you I do, but it, uh, well? it's Phillips K, but the website is actually a little in flux now. Is so it? it won't, right, okay. won't be. But if you Google me, you'll find, we'll find you, yeah. Yeah, and you find videos. And, yeah. and you are online, you're very present online, yeah. which is a good thing in that respect. So right. thank you very much. It's thank been you. an absolute pleasure. Great. It's how to spend um, a slightly dull, wet afternoon in Yorkshire. Thanks, Myron. Thanks, Anne. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Leadership Quest podcast. Is there something that's holding you back on your leadership journey right now? And you have some burning questions, maybe? Please let me know. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Annie Coops or the website leadershipquest.net. <laughs>